0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We hold these truths to be self-evident. These are the words Jefferson famously wrote in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We hold these truths, he said, to be self-evident, manifestly obvious. No explication or explanation needed. This matter is crystal clear. (laughs) I, I like the British saying, blindingly obvious. These things are blindingly obvious. Some things are like that, aren't they? No one needs to tell you. If you have half a brain, you can figure these sort of things out. The Empire State Building is tall. <laughs> Water is wet. People named Joseph are geniuses. Um, you know, some things, the ice cream is delicious. These are obvious things that anyone could see. You caught on all those, didn't you? But when Jefferson wrote these words, and the founders were a part of this, they understood that this was not blindingly obvious to everyone. The concept that all people, all men were created equal was not a universally held concept. In most of the world at that time, the belief in the divine right of monarchs still existed. The, the belief in a certain class of nobility was believed to still exist. And the, the founders themselves didn't even live up their own concept that all people are created equal because some of them owned slaves. Still the argument was compelling, wasn't it? All men are created equal, even if it was a novel idea. That nobility comes not from birthright, but from character. This was the concept that the founders of of our country had. And that that a government could be best um, founded by giving people a voice and a vote in their their country. Um, For Jefferson and the founders of the American Republic, these truths were self-evident, obvious. Anybody should be able to see this. And that... the. That they had certain rights, that humans had certain rights given to them by the Almighty. Among those, life, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. I like that they didn't say happiness. Only the opportunity to pursue happiness. These are things that should be obvious to all. But how are these truths obvious to everyone? How so? How is it self-evident that these rights um, should exist. Well, because everybody has these, these aspirations. These exist in the heart of every person. And if you would not want them denied to you, you should not deny them to anyone else. So what was self-evident to the American founders, as I said, was not self-evident to everyone. For centuries, the idea of the divine right of monarchs existed. And it was assumed to be natural, that this is the way um, things should be. That there were certain people and certain classes of people that were actually qualitatively better than others. I am stunned to see that this uh, supposition does still exist in our world, although it's becoming less and less so. How did it come that people became better, qualitatively better human beings than others? And how did the the idea of the divine right of monarchs and nobility keep getting reinforced? And how, more importantly, did we move away from that seismic shift? It's the way all the world thought. And suddenly you have this American experiment where that very fundamental question is being called into question. That fundamental assumption, rather, is being called into question. We have so moved away from that in a very short period of time, in a very, very short period of time, In our world, the idea of totalitarian and evil are almost synonymous terms. We can't even think of it in any other way. We understand democracy and the voice of a people to be a good and a necessary good, a human right even. But how did that move happen? How do we get from the divine right of monarchs and nobility to suddenly where the, the view that such a, a, uh, a system is itself evil and that, that the only real good is, is democracy and, and human voice? How did that seismic shift take place? And you know how it happened, because someone said, no, I don't believe that. Prove it. That's not right. Something's wrong about that. I, I disagree. The whole impetus for the movement had to come from somebody who said, I doubt that is true. I disagree. I don't think that's right. Suspicion. Doubt. Misgivings. Mistrust. You know, skepticism. These things are essential in learning, aren't they? They're essential in, in coming up with new ideas. They're essential in, in kind of understanding what is good and what is a, a necessary good or, or even a Right? Healthy skepticism is a good thing. It's the foundation to critical thinking. Unless you can say, hmm, I'm not so sure about that. Unless you can question and push back, you just take whatever somebody gives you. It's necessary to have doubts. In John's gospel, he gets us to the first Easter Sunday. It's evening. It's, it's sundown. It's Vespers time in a, in a Christian world. It's evening on Sunday. And the disciples are huddled in a house. They've locked the door. They're afraid. They're rightfully afraid, aren't they? Jesus has been executed, and it has only been a few hours ago. He's executed on Friday, here at Sunday night. And they're worried for themselves. It's rare that one execution of a sedition movement is enough. Isn't it? I mean, if you have a movement that's trying to be, bring about rebellion, you don't just kill one guy. You go for the, the whole movement. You, ne- you never know. You take out the leader and maybe one of the lieutenants is ready to move into place. So you go after them all. And the disciples know this. That's why they're huddled in a house with a locked door. They're worried. Peter, James, John, Philip, and all the rest. They're in hiding. They're afraid, John says. And then something amazing happens. They're in a locked room, in a locked house, huddled for fear that somebody's going to come and get them. And suddenly Jesus is there. He wasn't there, and then he is there. John didn't say that somebody got up and they heard a knock at the door and let him in. He doesn't say that anybody opened the door to let him in. He didn't walk through the door. There's no mention of climbing through a window. He's just not there, and then he is there. If you were here last week, you remember the, the angels or the men in the tomb. They weren't there, and then they were there. And it's, just, it's startling how this happens. Listen to what John says. On the evening, this is verse 19 of the, of the passage, the very first verse. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, came, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. John juxtaposes the doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood among them. And he showed himself to them. See, it's really me. He shows himself to them. He shows them his wounds in his hand and in his side. See, it's really me. But Thomas isn't there. Thomas, He's not there when this happens. I, I don't know about you, but I've always wondered why Thomas wasn't there. You know, what was it that took him out of this group, you know, or did they draw straws that somebody had to go to the store and buy food? You know, like, oh, Thomas, sorry, it's you. And, and here he is. He's the one that has to go. Or or maybe he has a family and he's worried about them. Or maybe he's going to sneak around and see if there's a, a, a mob hunting for them. You know, he's, he's got something to do that takes him out of that house and he's not there. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus is there and he's gone. So when Thomas comes back, Jesus has been there and departed and all of his friends, they're giddy with excitement. You can imagine, right? Thomas, you're not going to believe this. You're really not going to believe it. Jesus was here, and he's alive. And Thomas doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe it because Jesus was dead on Friday. And he was dead on Saturday. And Sunday morning came and he was still dead. And here they are Sunday night. You know, some people have had near-death experiences. Thomas probably knows this. He's probably seen physicians revive somebody in a, in a, in a minute. You know, if the person expires, maybe a couple minutes, they could be brought back. But days later, people do not come back. Once you've expired in a few minutes, maybe an hour has passed, it's over. Nobody comes back from that. And so Thomas says, no, no, I I don't believe this. He's not back. But you can imagine the disciples trying to convince him, can't you? No, seriously, we saw him. We, we, We laid eyes on him. We saw the wounds in his hand. We saw the wounds in his side. And Thomas says, I think you thought you saw him. It's not in John's text, but I think Thomas is saying, I think you thought you saw him. It might have looked like him. Maybe it's a trap. Somebody's out to get us, but it's not him. Listen to the optical verbs in in John chapter uh, 20, verse 20. When Jesus had said, peace be with you. This is when he first appears to the disciples. He showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. He showed them and they were glad they saw We saw him. We saw his wounds. We know he's alive. But Thomas said to them, verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, unless I place my finger in the marks of the nails, unless I place my hand in his side, I will not believe. They all see. Thomas wants to see and he wants to touch. I love the verb choice John has. Bala. Unless I shove my hand in his hand, unless I thrust my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. In the same chapter, John has another word for touch. Remember Mary Magdalene comes to Jesus. She sees him at the tomb. And she reaches out to grab hold of him. And he says, don't grasp hold or don't lay hands on me. John doesn't use this same word that he could have used just a few verses later to speak of Thomas. He wants the, the, the word that's usually meant to throw, like this. So if you're going to throw something like that, imagine what you're going to do. It's, it's, it's aggressive. It's clinical. It's, um, it, it, it's this sort of a, a forceful, rough examination. Thomas says, unless I, I examine, unless I see and touch, I'm not going to believe. Um, when my oldest son, Nicholas, was about 10 or 11, we were out skiing one time. And he was going down this, uh, it was like little s- snowboards. And it was on a small hill. And he's jumping this uh, hill. And it was like ice there. And he kind of fell back. He didn't have a helmet on. And he hit his head. And Abby was there and the boys were there. And, and it was all snow. Have you ever seen a, a little gash in a head wound? I mean, it bleeds like, you, like nothing you've ever seen before. And there's this blood all over the snow. And so quickly, we're doing what we can to dab his you know, head and hold pressure on it and rush him to the emergency room. And, and so Mama's back there in the back, and she's gently holding on. And, and we get to the, to the hospital, and the nurse is a little bit more forceful, but she's still really gentle and cleans the wound and shaves it. And then a couple of minutes later, a physician comes in, and um, a, a young woman, and she looks at his head. And she's also like Mom and like the nurse, gentle, a little more forceful. And then in one motion, it was a thing of beauty. I've never seen it since. I would love to see it again. In one move, she with her left hand reaches around and throws the kid in a headlock. And with the right hand simultaneously reaches down into her pocket of her lab coat and pulls out this staple gun. Boom, 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 like as fast as you can imagine. The kid had three staples in his head. I was in awe, you know, I wanted to see it again. Could, Could we videotape that and replay it? Because this was amazing. Not tender. Not tender at all. Clinical. Thomas says, unless I see with my eyes, unless I investigate with my hands, I'm not going to believe. And Jesus shows up. He appears a week later. Thomas, come here. Come here. He actually says this Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. In, in John's original Greek, he says, bring your finger here. Bring it here. It's, it's, the, it's the gentle, come hither, <laughs> you know, Come here, Thomas. Come over here. Put your hand right here. Look and see. And then he uses Thomas's own words. Why don't you thrust your hand in my side? Thomas's harsh word, ballo. Throw your hand up my side. Look at it. See that it's me and stop doubting and believe. The scientific method might not have been formalized until the 17th century, but human beings have been investigating things scientifically since our first days on the planet. We have these wonderful senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. We know how to collect data, how to interpret it, how to calculate distance, how to judge the sanitary nature of food. (laughs) You know, to check milk to see if it's any good. We know how to do these things, we know how to make judgments. C.S. Lewis says, people are guilty of chronological snobbery. We always think that our generation is the smartest that's ever been around. And we judge everybody else as being, you know, so foolish, so dumb. Uh, I remember this great uh, uh, line from, um, from Mark Twain who used to say, you know, when I was 17, my father was the stupidest man in the world. By the time I was 21, I was amazed at how much he had learned. You know, this is the way we are, right? We just are so, so much smarter. Some people are shocked that a first-century document has Thomas making scientific inquiry. But he didn't need Darwin or Newton or Galileo to teach him how to do what humans have always known how to do, to investigate, to examine, to see if something's true. What didn't come natural for Thomas was faith, to believe. It's interesting, in John's Gospel, he often calls Thomas Didymus, the twin, I always thought it was because he had a brother, you know, Teddy. You know, Teddy and Thomas, they were twins. (laughs) He's the other twin. But that's not it. That's not why they called him Didymus. They called him twin because after this, Thomas became the most passionate, the most fervent evangelist. He went, they say that Thomas went the furthest away from Jerusalem all the way to India proclaiming the gospel. They called him the twin because they called him the twin of Christ. He was the most like Christ of all the apostles. After hundreds of years of skepticism for us, where everybody has tried to flatten the world in some sort of empiricism, that all truth has to be quantified by some sort of measurement, maybe it's hard for us to believe as well. But Jesus gives these words to Thomas. He says, you believe because you've seen. Blessed, materially happy are those who have believed and who have not yet seen. In our empirical world, seeing is believing. But the world of faith turns everything upside down. Believing is seeing. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.